turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to talk about a section of Scripture here. And really, what we should be doing is, is, is kind of looking at kind of the whole section is verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. But there, there, there's a, actually a lot of rich detail in those, uh, uh, those verses. So we're going to break that up a little bit, and we're going to walk through this paragraph over the next uh, two weeks, possibly three weeks. Um, and so we're going to start with just kind of looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, because they set the tone for when we're going to get into the, 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 the details of the rest of the paragraph. And there's an idea here that I think is really, really important for us to kind of sort through and to think through. So if you'll turn with me, I mean, if you'll, if, it'll be on the overhead, or you can turn in your Bibles or on your device, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and let's read that together. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. May God bless our study of the Scriptures this morning. As we look through this paragraph, there are some ideas here that really, uh, depending on what your background is in contemporary Christianity, this, the, the, these few verses can be really confusing, uh, kind of weird. Um, uh, and so this is one of the reasons why we, we, we strive as best we can to approach the scriptures as understanding it as his story. It's the, there, there's a large story that speaks of God as loving creator and the one who pursues his creation and redeems them. Then there is uh, uh, their story. We're looking at their story. What we're wanting to do is we want to understand, because we understand that this book obviously has stood the test of time. And even though there are culturally bound elements in this book, it clearly speaks to universal principles that apply across time and really aren't, again, it, the Bible wasn't originally written, or at least the majority of it, to Christians. And so, so it's, it's, its truth really even transcends the Christian religion. That, it speaks truth and revelation about God and about the human condition that is quite profound. But there are certainly elements of it that are culturally bound throughout this story because it spans so many years. And so the more we understand about their story, what's going on whenever these things are being written, and why are they concerned about these things? Um, then we're able to maybe get some insights into the text that will help us understand how we're supposed to apply its truth. If you do not do that, then what happens is we read the Bible without any contextual uh, awareness, and we make arbitrary applications. And it ends up being a very unhealthy way of using the Bible, because over time, we lose faith in it altogether, because we, can, we can't escape our own intellectual dishonesty. And so, so it is important as best we can, and I don't pretend to be the best of it, but as best we can to understand what it means for their story. And at that point, we begin to say, okay, are there any principles that speak to our story as contemporary followers of Christ? And then we're ready to do the work as, Holy Spirit, how am I to respond to this truth? 
this truth. What does it mean specifically for my story? And so we will explore that together. But when it comes to the last part, a preacher or a book or a teacher can't do that part for you. That part is between you and the Holy Spirit. Whenever you're asking the question, what does this mean for my story? So, which is why we try to create space for reflection at the end. But, 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 but this is really important in order to understand what's going on right here in this particular context as we understand and dive into their story and make application to our story. So, very interesting way that he opens up this paragraph. Um, he begins with saying a phrase that we've already heard before and that we will hear again. In fact, it's one of the reasons why um, some people might refer to the book of, of Philippians as the epistle of joy, because this theme, uh, Paul seems to return to this theme throughout this letter. Um, so, so, so he begins with the phrase, rejoice in the Lord. Now, after he gives that command, Paul clearly is making a break in tone. It goes from rejoice in the Lord and watch out for those dogs. And particularly since we've kind of emphasized the fact that this letter seems to be like a personal correspondence letter, not necessarily um, a, a formal letter, because it's, 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 it's a theological thank you note, because the Philippian church have just sent a financial gift with Epaphroditus to Paul to help support him while he's in prison. He's scribbling some lines down and going to give that to Epaphroditus and send Epaphroditus back to read this letter to the Philippians. So there's a lot of warmth, there's a lot of care, there's a lot of thank you in it. And then all of a sudden, there's this tonal change in verse 2 of chapter 3, so much so that it's led some textual critics to speculate whether or not this was even originally a part of the letter. But I don't think, and I hope that in a few minutes after we walk through this, you'll see, I don't think it's a stretch to see where this section fits within the context of the letter. Because what Paul has been doing is saying, thank you. He's reminding them that the strength of their faith has to come from the joy they receive from the Lord. And now he's going to turn it to a concern he has for this community <clears throat> and, uh, and, 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 and to give them a warning. So the warning and the language that is strong is not necessarily directed to them per se, but toward a group of people that Paul believes could be a source of deception for them. So when he says rejoice in the Lord, now I took out a bunch of notes here because I got kind of nerdy over that phrase and looking at some of the uh, etymology of some of the words and so forth. And I, that, that may be somewhere in the computer if you're interested in that, you can, you can email me or text me or something and I'll send it to you. But essentially this, when you look at that word rejoice and this idea to rejoice in the Lord, it, 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 these words are part of, of root words that have been blended together. Um, and so essentially what this word rejoice means specifically is to delight in God's grace. And in fact, the Greek lexicon even said, you could even interpret it this way, it's to be glad for grace. Rejoice in the Lord, be glad for grace. Rejoicing in the Lord and being glad for grace, these are not elementary ideas that we move beyond because we become more emotionally mature. If gladness for grace begins to evaporate from my expression of faith, then the next turn in my journey will probably be a little bit more dangerous and unhealthy. It's the one thing we can't move away from. In fact, what should be happening as we learn more about God and about ourselves is the gladness we have for grace ought to be expanding 
and deepening with every turn of revelation that God brings us into. In other words, when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, like we say these things because we're, we're into bumper sticker sentimental spirituality. And so we say these pithy things, rejoice in the Lord. You, you might see that on a coffee mug. I, I, I would guess that most of us somewhere in our home or office have a plaque or a picture or something that has the phrase rejoice in the Lord. And what happens with these phrases when we bumper sticker them and, and we sentimentalize them, we, we rob them of their theological punch. But we have to recognize it is critical for your soul that your heart leaps with gladness for God's grace. And if it doesn't, it's very likely that you're entering into a season where there's the potential for self-destructive and toxic theological thinking to start entering into your value system. Gladness for grace, rejoicing in the Lord, these are not optional extras for bubbly personalities. This is absolutely, it's life or death for your soul. Whether or not you are consistently being moved by the energy of gladness for the grace of God in your life. And so Paul begins with this instruction. First, I'm going to say rejoice in the Lord, delight in God's grace, be glad for grace. But then the, the very next instruction is very odd. Rejoice in the Lord and watch out for dogs. I love sections like this in Scripture where you see this kind of bipolar reality of the life of faith that at any given moment there are, this, there are these conflicting ideas and emotions that are present in our souls. And that doesn't make us hypocrite, it, it makes us human. Get comfortable with feeling contradiction in your emotions and in your mind if you're going to give yourself over to spiritual growth because living with that contradiction is part of the growth process. That's not what makes you a hypocrite. Pretending that you don't have that contradiction, that's what makes you a hypocrite. But the more self-aware you are of that reality, then you can use that as wisdom to empower you to grow in your faith. So rejoice in the Lord and watch out for the dogs. Be glad for grace, but remember, there are consequences to bad ideas about God. And that is the thrust of what he is saying here. We want to have grace for people's theological journeys and grace for people's even theological speculations because our imagination and speculation is part of what God has given us to empower us to expand and grow in our consciousness of human beings. And we certainly want to embrace that. And we want to say, regardless of what somebody's espousing as theology or conviction, they still have tremendous worth before God, and He adores them as His creation in a way that we can't access, right? However, that is not to pretend like every idea has equal impact. There are some ideas that if you bring them into the cultivation of your understanding of faith early on, they're like a drop of food coloring. And pretty soon they begin to impact the entirety of your faith expression. Therefore, it is critical that we live in community and we have the kind of conversations where we can push back and ask questions about some of our spiritual or theological assumptions. This kind of diversity in community that, that creates space for, for dialogue to take place that goes back and forth without canceling one another is the unique thing of the space that we're created as those who are seeking to participate in the kingdom of God. 
Because now, even though it's been characteristic of, of, of the church for a long time, we see the world now, and the world can't create space for us to love each other and stay in friendship and disagree. We have to cancel one another. I was talking to somebody just before. It was weird. It's like there, there were days when you just had crazy liberal friends and some crazy conservative friends. But that's not how it operates anymore these days. If you are, if I'm liberal and you're a little bit more liberal than me, I'm probably going to cancel you out of my newsfeed. Don't really want to hear from your sentiments anymore. And if I'm liberal and you certainly, if you're more conservative than me, I might hide you from my newsfeed and just kind of cancel that. The same if I'm a conservative. If I'm a conservative, but you're a little more conservative than me, then you represent the crazy kind of conservative, and I'm going to cut you out of my life. If you're a little bit moving toward the center, but it moves you closer to the, I'm getting my gestures backwards, to the left, well, then I might just cancel you out of my newsfeed. But here's the problem. It doesn't just happen with newsfeeds. One Sunday, Travis and I could be great friends. I love this person I see in front of me as my friend. We, we dialogue nearly every week, typically complimenting one another on our clothing selections for the Sunday. He always wins. But with this cancel culture, I might open up Facebook and find that he likes something a little bit more liberal or conservative than me. So my first thing is, ah, I'm gonna hide, snooze him for 30 days. Don't wanna hear from Travis. But here's the problem. Emotionally, I come back to church Sunday morning and I see this man in the flesh and now there's this thing between us. Not because of him, but because of the way I've chosen to apply judgment and assumption because of a stupid sentiment that I realize we don't see eye to eye on a theological or political issue. And now my, my commitment to Travis is gonna start to diminish. My friends, this is happening all the time on a weekly basis. It is a topic of counseling, counseling conversations in a way that it never was five years ago. But it's the spirit of division that we create where we have to cancel one another. And why do we do that? But at the same time, we have to recognize there are consequences to bad ideas. I'm not saying we have to reject one another, but we have to challenge some of these ideas. If, if there is an enemy that our community wants to be aware of, which I'm very cautious of that. I don't like the us and them. I don't like the war metaphor that dominates the religious landscape. But if there is an identifiable obstacle, challenge, or enemy that we are kind of collectively aware of, it's the consequences of toxic ideas about God. And that is exactly what Paul is willing to go from being buddy, buddy, friend, friend to make an, an emotional switch and start warning about the dogs. It doesn't mean that he thinks those people are dogs, but the ideology that they are representing is destructive. And because of that, he's calling it out for what it is. And, and here's the thing, their ideology seemed really reasonable as we're going to see. So be glad for grace, but remember there are consequences to bad ideas about God. Rejoice in the Lord, but watch out for dogs. When we cease being glad for grace, we will begin to seek habits and ideas that make us feel worthy of God's mercy. And that's the problem, is that we want to then 
add to either my thinking is better than other people's or my behaving is better than other people's. And so now that begins part of my confidence before the Lord rather than standing on the sheer grace of God in Christ. And that's when these ideologies become idolatries. And when we serve idolatries, we harm people. When we worship and serve Jesus, we love and restore people. When we worship and serve our ideas about Jesus, we harm people. And it is critical that we understand the difference between the two. Because there, the reality is, there is the ideology of the dogs. And look, he doesn't just call them dogs. Look, look at the phrases that Paul uses here. He calls them the dogs, the evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. And we're going to look at those words and just very briefly, because it's a little bit too graphic to be too comfortable in here. But it's important that we see it because we need to understand why Paul is so worked up about this. So, of course, he calls them dogs. Now, dogs in the first century don't, didn't mean what they mean today. I mean, look, the truth is, outside of Jennifer, the living being that I spend the most time with is my dog. May or may not be indicative of my ill health or health, I don't know, but that's just the reality of it. And a little bit embarrassing to admit, but my dog owns pajamas. <laughs> my dog owns a bed that I took a nap on when it was clean and we first got it. It was so comfortable. He's coddled. He's, the family calls him precious. He walks through the house and everybody kisses him on the nose. So we have to understand that in general, our approach to the canine culture is which much more honoring than it is in other parts of the world, and certainly in other parts throughout history. When he uses the term dog, I mean, sometimes my wife actually says to me, I really wish you talked to me more like the way you talk to Coda. Okay, so, but that's not what Paul is saying here. When he uses the term dog, this is a repulsive creature. This is a scavenger, but it's not just a scavenger like the little scavengers that you can kick and shoo away. This is a scavenger that can turn on you and attack you. And if it wants to, it could kill you. And so they, 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 they were more of a mooch pooch, okay? And so this idea, this illustration of the dog came to mean a spiritual predator who feeds off of others. A spiritual predator who feeds off of others. Now, what Paul is saying is that there are Christian teachers in the church community of the first century who, whether they understand it or not, they are spiritual predators. And what they say and what they do damages people. And so we need to be aware of their ideology, not so that we can hate them, but so that we can protect ourselves against the influence of bad ideas about God. He calls them evil. It, it mean, that word actually means inwardly foul and rotten. It's talking about an inner malice that flows out of morally rotten character. This is strong language. Now, what's really challenging about this is this group of people, as we're going to see, were technically brothers and sisters in Christ, but they were so dominated by a toxic theology 
bad ideas about God that even though they may be intending to be honoring to God and they may be intending even to being used by God, nonetheless, the substance of what they're saying is rotten. And there are consequences to living underneath bad ideas about God. And so he uses his strong language. Finally, he, 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 he talks about, he calls them the mutilators of the flesh. Um, what is interesting about this, and this is in your notes, is that the Greek word for circumcision, for circumcision is peritomi. And it just means to cut around. Again, that's as, gra- that's as, clo- that's as graphic as we're going to get. But that's what it means. What Paul does here is this really fascinating, really kind of sarcastic wordplay. Because there is the word uh, peritomi and catatomi. They're very, very closely related, but they mean two very different things. Peritomi means to cut around, whereas catatomi uh, means uh, to, um, where is it? I lost my place. Cutting to pieces. Cutting to pieces. And we're talking about circumcision. So what he's saying is, yeah, they're, they're just destroying the flesh. I mean, Galatians is even more uncomfortable. Have you read Galatians? Paul's talking about the same group of people in Galatians as he's mentioning here in Philippians. And in that one, he's like, I just wish they'd go all the way and emasculate themselves. Pretty strong language and not very PC. So I'm quoting Paul. That doesn't represent Artie necessarily or the views and convictions of Christ Community Church, except for we teach the Bible and it's in the Bible, but do with that what you will. Um, but, but what I'm saying is he's going out of his way to make a pretty dramatic emotional point. Why is he doing that? Because there's a consequence to living under bad ideas about God. And most of the time it's doing its damage and we're not even aware of the real estate it's taking up in our subconscious mind. So part of the process of becoming more spiritually healthy is learning habits and rhythms that allow you access to those ideas that are rolling around uncontested in your mind and to find out, man, there are some squatters in this real estate that I need to get rid of. They don't need to be taking up this space. They're using too much power in the background, making the operating system less efficient, if you will. Paul warns against teachers uh, encouraging Gentile Christians. Here's we get specific into their story. Paul warns against teachers encouraging Gentile Christians to submit to circumcision. He warns the new, he warns the new covenant believers to refrain from adopting old covenant identity rituals as requirements for being the people of God. Now, the, here's the tension here, the, the, and this, is, this can get a little confusing, but this idea is really important because without understanding this idea, you actually can't understand the content of the New Testament epistles. This idea is so much in the New Testament, both in Paul's epistles, but even drama in the book of Acts, that unless you appreciate this tension right here, you, you, you can't faithfully interpret and apply the New Testament. That's how critical understanding this group of individuals really is. And this specifically is what they were teaching. This is what Paul is writing about. He writes about it in other letters, like I said, particularly in Galatians. So who were these people? And Artie, why are you making such a big deal about circumcision people? I mean, from this context. Uh, So 
For one thing, you have to understand this. Paul never told a Jewish Christian that they couldn't practice circumcision. Now, isn't that interesting? They could follow the Messiah and still honor their ethnic cultural rituals and their identity markers. There was nothing wrong with that. But if they said our religious cultural rituals and identity markers are what every follower of Jesus needs to follow, that is the issue. That is the problem. We can express our diversity. We can't deify our particular expression of diversity as the standard by which we judge everyone else's and demand that they conform to our cultural expression of faith, including our lifestyle choices and our value systems. So now we're complicating the thing. Wait, I thought you told me to follow Jesus. Uh, That was a trick. Once we get you in the door, we let you see the fine print and we beat you over the head with it. At times, this particular group of Christians have ta- at times, Christians have taught that these, quote, dogs, or the other word you'll see in commentaries and, and Bible studies is the idea of the word Judaizer. And all that meant, that's not meant to be a slam or anti-Semitic. It just meant a Jewish Christian that was convinced that it wasn't enough for Gentiles to simply follow Jesus. They needed to be converted to Jewishness as well as their faith in Jesus in order to be faithful participants of the people of God, the Judaizers. And so, so um, at times, Christians have taught that these dogs or Judaizers were teaching that following the Torah was how Gentiles get right with God. Follow the law is how you get right with God. I do not think that that's who they are. And, and I'm making this point because in understanding the difference between that and what they were actually teaching, that's when we find out, ugh, there's more relation between their story and our story than what first appeared. Because the truth is, these people don't exist anymore. This is not, this is not a challenge This particular expression is not the challenge that the church is dealing with in modern times. So the Judaizers didn't teach that one must follow the law to, quote, get right with God. The people that they targeted were already following Christ. So they didn't say this to pre-Christian people. They're saying this to Christian Gentiles. These were teachers that were urging Gentile Christians to follow the Torah and to practice circumcision as evidence that they were God's people, not as the means of becoming God's people. See, that's the trick there. Oh, no, no, it's all of grace. So no legalism in coming to Christ. However, I'm going to define authentic faith in legalistic terms so I can shackle you with that once I get you in the door. You know, it's like the great theologians, you too. Uh, One of my favorite albums is still to this day is Uptune Baby. And now, not to baby, they record a song called, um, I think it's called One. Real fans are going to be mad at me, and I'm going to get text over this, and I apologize. Matt, put your phone away. Um, uh, he's, he's my Facebook fact checker, and so he's always alerting me of little things I've missed from time to time. Um, so, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, you two. At one, this great lyric. You say love is the answer. Love the higher law. Love is the answer. Love the higher law. You ask me to enter, and then you make me crawl. And I can't be holding on to what you've got when all you've got is hurt. It's a prophetic message to the church, but it's applicable to the Judaizers as well. 
They were essentially striving to make Gentile Christians into Jewish Christians, thus making sense of their participation in the Abrahamic covenant. Paul understands the enormous theological consequence of such a move. At the end of the day, the reason why Paul is a fly in the ointment is because of the way he insists on challenging the spirit of the empire and the spirit of religion. He won't back away from this idea. He's constantly challenging the empire with his proclamation, uh, no, G Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. And he's constantly challenging this religious stronghold of, of, of moralism and ritualism by, by saying, uh, by, by emphasizing that this reality that there are consequences if we introduce this into our thinking, particularly, I mean, I'm sure he wasn't thinking this, but in God's wisdom, look, this is the first century. This is one of the things that with all the error that comes out of the first century that we still have to deal with, this is something that needs to be decided upon from the very beginning. This needs to get worked out as we're transitioning from a faith that was primarily an ethnic identity of a particular people group to now being a universal religion that will encompass all people groups, every tongue, tribe, and nation, I believe is the vision. And Paul understands that if we are going to be for every tribe, tongue, and nation, this error has to be stamped out. And so, Paul writes his epistles, because the result of this particular emphasis would lead God's people away from the joy of boasting in the grace of Christ to boasting in the religious activity of the flesh from boasting in the grace of Christ to boasting in the religious activity of the flesh. Well, now we might begin to see that their story and our story share some commonalities. And I won't put that on you. I will say this was certainly me. There was certainly a moment in time when the existential weight on my shoulders was lifted as I understood that because of Jesus, the way God understood my failure, my sin, my shame, and my guilt wasn't what I thought it was. And so as that was alleviated for me, and here's the thing, some of you guys came into this thing and you looked like you belonged here from the beginning. That is not me. I knew that if God was gonna forgive me, there was an awful lot of ugliness that he was willing to cover with the blood of Christ. And so there's this levity, there's this joy, there's this delight. And then you get discipled. And that's when the trick comes in. Then suddenly you start to realize, wait a minute, Expressing faith in Christ and following Jesus as my Lord is actually not enough. I have to look and think like all the rest of these people. And that's why they give me these books. This is why they put me in these classes. I took the bite, and you know what? I did well. I did really well. Now, you take that from the existential journey of a 14, 15, 16-year-old who didn't do well in, or who didn't perceive himself to do well in any other social group. But then, the church group 
I could maybe be the quarterback here. I did really well. I learned the stuff. And that's when you learn, okay, there's this bit of information that if you master it, you're actually a better Christian than the other people. So you begin with being part of the human race. Then you realize if you respond to the grace of God, you're actually a, a human that's better than the rest of the other humans because now you're a Christian human. Well, that's pretty good, right? I mean, I'm, God, God's going to take me to Club Med in the Sky where I'm going to have a big, big house and play football, and all these pagans are pagans, pagans. So they're going to fry like bacon, and they'll be sorry. They'll be sorry one day that they didn't invite me to their parties and they made fun of me. This vengeance then gets introduced into this kind of spirituality, right? And so then pretty soon, though, it wasn't enough to do that with the Christians and non-Christians. Pretty soon you then learn if you're part of denominational Christianity, that maybe your expression of the Christian faith is actually superior to other expressions of the Christian faith. And it doesn't matter what, when I was a Pentecostal, we were better than the Baptist. When I was a Baptist, we were better than the Pentecostals. We, we, we just, we, we, we create these factions that then introduces this idea of superiority. And pretty soon we are dividing and we are isolating and now our life is not celebrated because of the fruit of the spirit that's born, but how will we conform to the group that we're in? My friends, this is idolatry and it, it will kill us. Just as overt sin will kill us, this will starve our spirit. See, the issue wasn't their obligations on Gentile believers before expressing faith in Christ. The danger was the obligations they were putting on Gentile believers after they expressed faith in Christ. This is so critical. In fact, this is turned on. I'm the only one with amplification. I'm going to choose to read it again. The issue wasn't their obligations on Gentile believers before expressing faith in Christ. The danger was the obligations they were putting on Gentile believers after they expressed faith in Christ. This danger continues to threaten the practice of our faith to this very day. It's not enough to follow Jesus. If you want to be part of my group, you got to follow Jesus the way I follow Jesus. And you got to believe all the things about Jesus that I believe about Jesus. Now, I know I told you, just cry out to the Lord and he'll save you by grace. But now I'm telling you the bigger story. If you don't do it the way we do, you're probably out. And it probably really didn't stick. This is the mindset that, 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 that I began to adopt and that was encouraged by the faith communities in some level that I was a part of. But my friends, here's the problem. When our faith is in Jesus plus, it is no longer Christian. Put whatever you want to put after that plus. If it's Jesus plus speaking in tongues, if it's Jesus plus never dancing or drinking, if it's Jesus plus uh, I cuss and drink a little, but I never vote Republican. I mean, whatever it may be, the moment that our faith is in Jesus plus, it is no longer Christian. The evidence of belonging to Christ is the full, is the fruit of the Spirit, not ideological group conformity. And the way this is relevant from their story to our story is this. I was always part of communities where you had to believe before you could belong. 
But when I read the gospels, I realized that is not how Jesus operated. I mean, even his top people have some pretty whacked out theology, even at the end of the journey that he has to rebuke. Wouldn't it be amazing if we created a community we, we had space where you could belong before you believed. That, that we recognize believing isn't a matter of convincing you. The belie- believing, inspiring you to believe is a matter of showing you. And how can I show you if I have a theology that says you need to keep away because you're unclean, lest you make me unclean as well? That's not how clean and unclean works with Jesus. When the unclean touches Jesus, he doesn't become unclean. When the unclean touches Jesus, the unclean becomes clean. And so what if instead of believe them belong, we said belong, we'll love you anyway. Even if you disagree, even if you got weird, charismatic, crazy ideas or weird conservative Baptist ideas, it's okay. Let's walk this journey out together. Let's learn from one another. I might find out that there's thinking that I have that is toxic. You might find out there's thinking, thinking that you have that's toxic. Together, we might expand our experience of faithfulness to Jesus because we're willing to learn from one another and hold space where we recognize we can love one another, but we have to remember that not every idea about God is equal. Some of them can be quite dangerous. So what Paul says is by contrast to these people, we are the circumcision, we worship by the Spirit of God, we boast in Christ, and we don't put confidence in the flesh. The contrast is not in what one does, but the source of one's confidence. Is our confidence in what God has done for us in choosing to make us his dwelling place Or is our confidence in how well we are performing our religious convictions after we've come to faith in Jesus? Now, does it look different than the Judaizing influence of the first century? Absolutely. But in principle, is it the same? You bet. And I'm not interested in making a list of the groups. Here are the teachers in our modern day. These are the modern day Judaizers. I don't think that's how we're supposed to read the Bible, even though that's how we do it. I'm not asking you to look for the Judaizing influence across modern Christendom. I'm asking you to have the courage to peer into your own heart and find where that Judaizing influence already exists in your own thinking. These characters, and I'm not saying they weren't real historical characters, they live in my mind. The Pharisees are there. The Judaizers are there. The pagans are there. The adulterers are there. The warmongers are there but so is Jesus, so is the community of God, so is the truth of the revelation of the gospel of grace. It's all there in my head, and it's, I have the responsibility to discern those influences. So then, how do you know the difference? I don't know that answer completely, but here are some guidelines. You can begin with asking yourself some questions like, is your faith characterized by joy in the Lord? Or have you given up on that? Like, oh, what we do is we define joy as an emotion and say our faith's not about emotion, so it doesn't matter that I'm miserable all the time because at least I'm being faithful to Jesus. 
you're not real fun to live with, and you're not a very effective evangelist. No, we've got to get back. In fact, for me personally, joylessness is something that I repent of if I see it as characteristic of my life now. It wasn't before. I called joylessness as just being realistic. Now, now it's something that I repent of because I know how critical it is to my spiritual health. So is your faith characterized by joy in the Lord or does your faith make you angry or defensive or suspicious or ashamed and insecure? Another way of asking the same question might be, is your faith an experience of living waters flowing from within or are you simply tired? A lot of us can live as exhausted Christians for decades if we're not careful. See, sin is not primarily the action. Sin is in the source of my confidence or security. So the question you have to ask yourself about your own belief system this morning is, who is responsible for your faithfulness to Jesus? Well, the answer according to the gospels is, the one who is responsible for your faithfulness to Jesus is Jesus, not you. There's a reason why the worship team didn't stand up here this morning and sing, great is my faithfulness, O Lord God Almighty. Great is my faithfulness, Lord unto thee. That's not what we sang. What we sang was, great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. A modern day hymn writer might say it something like this. If I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. But if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. Thank you, Uncle Rich. Who is responsible for your faithfulness to Jesus? Paul answers that in Romans 14. He says, who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls. And he will stand because he has the same theology as me. And he will stand because he holds the same political values that I have. He will stand because he has chosen to mimic his lifestyle choices in a way that looks very similar to my lifestyle choices. Nope. He will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. You will stand because the Lord is able to make you stand. I will stand because the Lord is able to make me stand. My friends, stop looking for and listening to voices that suggest you are not enough because to believe that is to think that Christ is not enough. And we have to recognize this for the deception that it is. This is the voice of the Satan, not the Lord. This is the voice of the accuser, not the father. This is the voice of the adversary, not the advocate. Are you tired? 
Perhaps you need to rediscover what it means to rest in Christ. Perhaps your response this morning should not be, what must I do next? But Lord, what are you calling me to eliminate? An idea about you, an ideology, or am I seeking to buttress my confidence in you by doing a lot of, quote, spiritual work that is exhausting me? And maybe you're actually calling me in this season to some radical elimination. Are you burdened in some area because you're wearing Saul's armor rather than entrusting yourself to the way God has uniquely prepared you to follow? What religious obligation might God be inviting you to lay down today? It doesn't mean that the obligation is bad and you might return to the practice one day. But right now, because of the way that it's become warped in your own mind, it's actually not producing health in you. And maybe the Spirit knows that. Maybe the Spirit is calling you to lay something down or to challenge. You know those ideas? Those ideas that you still keep because you feel like you're obligated to? But there's something in your gut that says, Ugh, this just doesn't seem right to me. This just doesn't feel right. Well, what I was told to do with that gut feeling was rebuke it because it was Satan trying to do, deceive me from the truth. Imagine my embarrassment and apologement before the Lord when I had to apologize for rebuking him for the past 20 years in my life. So it wasn't Satan at all. It was the Holy Spirit saying, I love them and they love me, but they're not describing me. They're describing their wound right now. And you need to know the difference. It took a while. So what is it for you? These obligations create pride when we're successful and shame when we fall short. The faithfulness to Jesus is rooted in his choosing of us. We have to come to a close. I, I love what John the Baptist represents when he says, I must decrease and he must increase. The ego has to decrease, my friends, in order to make way for the living Christ. As the worship team comes forward, would you all stand? So we get ready to come to the Lord's table and create just a few moments here where we open up our hearts to respond to the Spirit. I want to leave you with these thoughts. Number one, you can never wonder from God, my friends. And the reason why is because He will never wonder from you. And you can tell when this theology has entered your mind because you'll start asking questions like, how can I get returned to God? How can I get closer to God? You know, somebody might, well, never mind, I don't have time for making jokes right now. But the answer to the question, how do I get closer to God, is to, you begin by understanding that you were never separate from him. It, it may have felt that way to you and your emotions, but guess what the psalmist celebrates? He celebrates the fact that goodness and mercy are going to follow us all the days of our lives. And we're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what do I need to do to return to where I need to be? You need to open your eyes and see that you were never outside of his hands. You, you were never outside the parameters of his mercy. You're never outside the parameters of his love. Goodness and mercy will follow you all your days and will never be hindered 
by any path that may distract you. So as you come forward this evening, this morning, pray, Holy Spirit, will you show me how I may live, how, how I may live, how I may be living is what I meant to say, from religious obligation rather than from the revelation of your love for me. Show me how, now this morning is a little different. Sometimes I say, let's pray, show me what to do. This morning is not show me what to do, but show me how to be. Holy Spirit, as we take communion, would you be so kind to speak to our hearts and show us how to be the beloved of God?